Welcome to ING's Think Aloud, where we try to make sense of the world in the most unbanky way we can. In today's episode, Asia emits half the world's carbon dioxide, but ahead of the COP26 climate change talks in November, only a handful of Asian countries, China, Japan and South Korea, have made firm commitments to achieving a net zero carbon future. And getting there will be an uphill battle, requiring a total transformation of the energy-intensive sectors and trillions of dollars in spending. A new ING report says greening Asia's transport system alone will cost over $12 trillion, with China bearing the brunt. So are the goals credible? What will it mean for Asia's economy? And who will end up paying for it? I'm Rebecca Byrne, and to answer these questions, I'm joined by the author of that report, ING's Head of Asia Research, Rob Carnell. So Rob, the scale of the transition to a net zero future in Asia is going to be absolutely huge, isn't it? And you've looked at this just in terms of the transport sector, but even here, the numbers are quite staggering. Tell us what you found. Yeah, that's right. So we looked at three economies, uh, three of Asia's biggest, obviously, China, Japan and South Korea. And we looked at one sector, as you mentioned, the transport sector. And we looked at just one part of that, which is, you know, as we move towards all of us driving battery electric vehicles, as the rail networks in all of these countries get fully electrified, and as we think of net uh, zero carbon ways to run the marine sectors and aviation, sustainable aviation, fuel, ammonia, things like that, which all of which will need to be created with green electricity, that assumes a lot more green electricity generating capacity. So that's what we've looked at. We've totted up how much that's going to cost, that capital investment to get us to where we think we're going to be in 2040 with net zero carbon. But those three economies, it's $12.4 trillion. It's, It's very much a sort of Dr. Evil Austin Powers type number. And I feel like sort of following up with a sort of maniacal laugh. But I mean, that's the number we've come up with. So but given that these costs are so enormous, does this draw into question the credibility of these national pledges? Because you say this is just scraping the surface of what will be a much bigger and more complicated problem. It kind of it does and it doesn't. Yeah, Yeah, the numbers are huge. And I think the way I've been thinking about this, and this is the reason that we we started doing this was, you know, is this actually credible? I think it still is, because one of the things you have to bear in mind is that this expenditure will take place over the next 30 years for Japan and Korea and 40 years for China. So if you spread it out, if you start now, and that's important, and then spread it out evenly over that period, you're talking about 0.6 percentage points of GDP equivalent for Japan and Korea and about 1.8 for China. Now, it's still quite chunky, again, bearing in mind that this is only one part of one bit of the whole thing, but it's on that scale of being manageable. But I think that point I make earlier about if you don't start now, in fact, really, if you don't start yesterday, really, but if you don't start now and, and sort of do nothing for the next five years, then I think you start making it look a little bit non-credible. I think if, you've, if you're packing that amount of, spending into a much shorter period because you've dragged your feet, then I think, yeah, you're, you're right to be a little bit sceptical. 
So as you say, you've looked at three countries. Let's start with uh, China because it is the world's largest emitter of carbon dioxide and its emissions are not expected to peak until 2030 or so. But you do say that they are making some progress. Yeah, they are. And they're, they're, they're totally upfront about this. I mean, they've got um, development goals. They don't feel it's it's reasonable for them at their stage of economic development to, to start going backwards in terms of carbon emissions. Um, and they've got a lot of growth ahead of them, much more so than Korea. And of course, Japan hasn't grown in decades. So that's one of the reasons that China, the numbers we've come up with China are so much bigger than the others, because by 2060, when they say they're going to be, or when they're trying to be net zero, their economy will be multiples of the size it is now. And it's already the second biggest economy in the world. So yeah, they've made already quite a lot of progress. I think they're the world's biggest producer of battery and user of battery electric vehicles. There are more charging stations in China than anywhere else. So they're doing a lot of the right stuff already. But there is obviously a huge uh, target for them to achieve. One of the reasons I feel that China does come across as quite credible at the moment is because you're always being reminded of the environment. President Xi is making huge amounts of policy uh, statements at the moment and all wrapped around this concept of common prosperity, which is basically about pushing back against big business, of which dirty, polluting industry is part of that, and doing things for the common person of which making their cities not smoggy and horrible to live in is a big part of that. It's partly populist, but it's also addressing sustainability issues as well. So I think the fact that this is being rammed down our throats almost day in, day out with these policy messages is important and means we should take it seriously. What about Japan? It's aiming for uh, net zero by 2050. But is is that doable? Because you say it's actually not made a lot of progress in decarbonising its economy. Yeah, no, it hasn't really. I mean, in some ways, you could say Japan is a very technologically advanced country. Yes, it is. Uh, In other ways, it hasn't done a lot. Yes, people drive a lot of hybrid cars in Japan, but they're still basically burning petrol. So very few actual electric vehicles being driven. So on the transport side, quite a long way to go there. Um, But in some ways as well, the fact that they've done very little is almost the benefit because there's a lot of low hanging fruit. You know, tackling something like what people drive is a relatively straightforward thing for a country as technologically advanced as Japan to take up. So they can make a lot of progress very quickly. The other thing that actually helps with Japan is its stagnation. Its population is shrinking really rapidly now. It's down by about, I think last year, it was down by something like 400,000. It's about 200,000 the year before. So that in itself is helping it to reduce its energy usage without even really trying. Energy use year on year out is dropping. But of course, that's not enough. It's not enough to have a reduced energy output. It has to be zero. That's the goal. And that's the bit at which your climate stops getting hotter, only then. So there's still a long way to go for them as well. And South Korea is still heavily reliant on fossil fuels right now. You say that it's good the country has embraced the idea of moving to net zero, but details of how they're actually going to get there are still a bit sketchy. Yeah, so South Korea, like All the other economies we've talked about have released these big, weighty public documents setting out their goal, their vision for a net zero carbon future. And I've read these. I mean, I maybe haven't read them word for word, but I've ploughed through them, you know, as much as any human can. And what comes out of it is not an awful lot of detail, quite a lot of sort of generalised blue sky thinking but not much when it comes to the sorts of things that we're really looking for, numbers, stuff like, right, how much 
Are you going to rely on, let's say, solar photovoltaic, offshore wind, onshore wind? What sort of role is nuclear going to play in this? Very important question. Um, and then a lot of the countries, Korea isn't alone on this, but the degree to which they start off by saying, oh, yeah, and we're going to use carbon capture and storage along with gas as one of our ways through this. At the moment, I think there are big question marks over this. So I'm, I feel the whole thing at the moment just looks like, you know, a first draft. I'm not sure we should take this literally as this is how it's going to be. But this is their first attempt. And maybe when they thought about it in another five years, they made a bit of progress. They'll come up with something which looks wildly different. Well, all three of these economies' plans to achieve net zero carbon emissions rely to some extent on carbon capture and storage. So what is your view on this? I think it's interesting. I think we're going to need some carbon capture and storage because the amount of carbon dioxide that countries globally, not just Asia, of course, but globally have pumped into the atmosphere means that even if we achieve net zero by 2050 or let's say 2060 in the case of China, we're not going to have done it quickly enough to keep the world's climate in that one and a half range that has been sort of laid out as the goal. So we actually need to pull it back a bit. And the only way you can do that is with some form of mitigation to actually draw carbon dioxide out of the air. Now, at the moment, there isn't really any credible, commercially viable, scalable way of doing this. So it's very interesting. This week, the Financial Times and, and various other newspapers are talking about this project in Iceland. It's run by a Swiss firm and it's called Orca. And it's currently the biggest the biggest carbon capture and storage plant in the world. So I'm going to ask you a question now. How many, how many tons of carbon do you think the world's biggest carbon scrubbing plant in the world is taking out per year? Ooh, <laughs> I have no idea. I couldn't even make a, a wild guess. Okay. So to save your embarrassment by saying something like, like really big or really low. Yeah, I, I would imagine since, since you're asking me the question, it's something sort of lower than might be expected. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's 4,000 tonnes. Actually, it was 3,000 tonnes in the FT article. The Guardian said uh, 4,000. Now, I was looking at my uh, Singapore utilities bill the other day when the kids were still at home running the aircon on full. And they tell you how much carbon you're emitting. And in that particular heavy usage month, I think I emitted a ton. <laughs> so there, you know, 4,000 months of, of my heavy usage, that's all the world's biggest is doing at the moment. I figured out if, if all the apartments in my sort of condo unit were, were equivalent, it's about 250 apartments that that's pulling out. We're, we're way off being mm. able to look at that and to be able to factor that into plans and saying, yep, this is viable. And you look at the picture of this, this is a big old chunky piece of, uh, of, of equipment that they've got covering several acres of ground. You know, it's a huge sort of container things with fans on sucking the air in and scrubbing the carbon dioxide out. If we're realistically going to be using this stuff on scale, you're going to be having to fill some of the, the world's least populated countries with this sort of stuff. You know, deserts and peatland and bogs and all this sort of stuff where nobody lives. It's going to have to be filled with this stuff. And it turns out you can only, only actually do this in Iceland because you've got to then pump it underground into the basalt layer where it becomes rock. And apparently you can't do it anywhere else in the world. So as far as a, uh, 
a sensible and realistic and scalable and it's not going to start leaking out if we pump it into the North Sea and all these other things. I just don't think we know at the moment. I, mm-hmm. So if somebody puts it into their plan, I think I've got to go sceptical, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm not sure it can be done and we may have to figure out something else. And I think given that we're already sort of in the red as far as our carbon emissions, to start the plan with a load of carbon capture and storage is, I think, it's, it's cheating to some extent. I think where we can possibly get to absolute zero without having to rely on mitigation, I think we're going to need to. This has to be for the emergency, for the stuff we cannot possibly find another way to do it with, without this. Right. So a lot more work to be done. Yes. But the transition is going to be massively disruptive, isn't yeah. it? You, you've pointed out that there are going to be job losses, huge cost increases, just a lot of disruption to the existing industries. But you also say that it it will actually boost GDP. So could this actually help to mitigate some of the structural problems that economies in Asia are facing over the next few decades? Yeah, and again, um, Asia, but globally as well. So think of uh, of stagnating economies like, say, Japan. I I think the, the closest analogy I can come up with and because I'm in my, my 50s, I remember this quite well, Y2K, it's 20 odd years ago, when the world started to spend money on worrying about satellites falling out of the sky, out of orbit, and planes falling out of the sky, and credit cards stopping working, the world's international payment system falling apart, on the basis that there was a sort of dual digit system for the year, instead of you needed four digits to cover the fact that we were into the new millennium. That, I think it turned out, was money that didn't need to be spent at all because nothing happened as far as I can see and the results were. And maybe maybe that would have happened if we hadn't spent the money. But the years running up to the year 2000, firms worldwide were spending huge amounts of money upscaling their IT equipment. That expenditure alone, that's private business investment, that lifted GDP. Rising GDP makes it look like productivity is rising. It's a purely cyclical effect. It's not you know causal. GDP goes up. Productivity goes up. That's pretty much how it works. This is like that on steroids and for decades. So it could be very interesting. We've been used to talking in the last decade, sort of running up to the global financial crisis and all the period after that, things like productivity decline or secular stagnation. We might be able to just scrub that out of the lexicon for economics because we might be looking at a you know, very, very powerful period where the world no longer has a global glut of savings. And we're actually seeing interest rates being bid up because all that saved uh, wealth is now being put to very productive use. And perhaps unlike Y2K, this stuff is actually useful. Uh, we do actually need to be doing this for a very real reason. But yeah, disruption, there'll be whole industries that, that pretty much cease to exist and all the people working in those will lose their jobs. And if you're invested in them, you'll lose your investment. And uh, if you've got loans outstanding to them, if you're banks, you'll, you know, they'll, they'll default on those. So there's very, very sort of big ramification for that, that everybody's going to have to get their head around during that transition period, because it will be massively disruptive as well as providing these positive uh, opportunities as well. So I guess... The big question is who is going to end up paying for all this and how will it be paid for? Will it be the private sector or will it be the government or a mix of both? Well, I think given that we've seen that governments do have the wherewithal to throw money around during the COVID pandemic, it's unrealistic to think that they won't be spending at least some of this money. But actually, they're all in debt up to their necks. So I think they'll be looking for the private sector to do the bulk of this. I think where the government comes in, they need to set the benchmarks 
the, uh, the goals for the private sector. So if you say to them, right, we'll be phasing out um, conventional vehicles by the year 2025, 2030, whatever, that's useful because business can then adapt and adjust to that. Um, so we need a lot more of those goals being set to get business moving in that direction. But I think the, the, by far the bulk of the spending is going to be done by the private sector. And that requires um, banks, that requires the financial industry to come up with ways of financing that. So, you know, we hear most years about green finance, green bonds, sustainable, sustainability bonds, making record numbers of, of issuance year after year. The growth rates are astronomical. Well, you know, to quote Barkman Turner Overdrive, we ain't seen nothing yet. This is just going to carry on growing exponentially because if 12.4 trillion is even broadly in the right sort of ballpark, this one sector, well, scale that up by the full economy, then scale it up globally. We are talking multiple tens of trillions of dollars to be spent on this stuff. And we probably haven't even invented all of the uh, green and sustainability financial instruments that we're going to need to get this through. So that industry is going to be powering ahead. Okay, Rob Carnell, ING's Head of Asia Research. Thanks very much. Thank you. This podcast has been prepared by ING solely for information purposes, irrespective of a particular user's means, financial situation, or investment objective. The information does not constitute investment recommendation, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice, or an offer of solicitation to purchase or sell any financial instrument. Read more at think.ing.com slash content disclaimer.